0: Hello friends, I'm Duncan Rayburn and welcome to my sixth podcast in the series of reflections on finding meaning in the midst of pandemic. This is the last episode in the series, I've decided, since time has been short and I want to move on to other more hopeful and hopefully more metaphysically satisfying things. In this episode, I thought it would be good for us to home in on the question of human flourishing. In particular, I want to ask a question and then not completely answer it. The question being, what does it mean to be healthy? I don't want to answer the question completely because I don't think I can. I and perhaps we just don't have enough time. But I want to ask this question because it seems that so many already presume a particular answer. An answer that is, I think, shrunken down. It's a shrunken down version of the kind of an answer that could be provided. I also don't want to answer the question of what it means to be healthy fully because part of what I notice is a kind of idolatry of health-mongering. I am, for the record, a fan of being healthy. I think it's a good idea to look after ourselves. But there is such a thing as taking a good thing too far. Or rather, taking one view of a thing out of proportion with everything else. The person who is utterly health-obsessed is an idolater. Not because health is bad, but because forcing the human soul into a one-dimensional cardboard cutout version of what it means to flourish is bad form. One thing I want to briefly look at is how our ideas around health have been set up in this time of pandemic as something that exists between, or somehow in both, the Scylla of medical health and the Charybdis of economic health. In classical mythology, Scylla was a scary six-headed monster who lived on a rock on one side of a narrow strait, and Charybdis was a whirlpool on the other side. When ships passed close to Scylla's rock in order to avoid Charybdis, she would seize and devour the sailors. It's been Fascinating to notice how this is one way that the question of human health has been framed in recent months across the globe. The idea is that we're all trying to sail, so to speak, between being destroyed by sickness, COVID-19, or being destroyed by economic devastation. My question, though, is simply this. Is this the best way of framing the issue of health? Briefly, the answer is no. This is not the best way of framing health, it's not the best way of framing anything. In fact, I have a few other concerns too, namely, how this construction of health around medical and ethical demands reflects a much deeper problem evident in our modernist conceptions of the ethical as merely constructed. With this constructed ethos, human flourishing itself, as part of natural law, has been sacrificed on the altar of modernity and especially on the altar of our modern conceptions of freedom, which are not very good. Something that has shown up particularly prominently in this time is how inadequate the scientific materialist worldview, at least on its own, has been at actually generating reasonable responses to the COVID crisis. If there was ever a time in which it was obvious that there is no such thing as a monolithic scientific picture of things, this is it. Science is never theory-neutral, as Thomas Kuhn in particular has argued. But it is also, I would say, the very opposite of values-neutral. The most highly funded scientific research today is still in cosmetics and weaponry, and it is impossible to argue that this is without serious ideological problems. Well, of course, economics is also not values-neutral and economists make a habit of disagreeing with each other even when their fact sheets look identical. Anyway, it seems to me that many of the additional stresses and strains placed on people are made worse by the tussle between the Scylla of medicinal health and the charybdis of economic health. I'll be focusing only on the former, really, because we just don't have enough time, and in any case I would like to be sane by the end of this episode, and I think I'm assuming that you want to be sane as well. Forgive me ahead of time, by the way, for being somewhat controversial here. I'm actually not trying to be controversial, but I'm aware that this is probably one of the outcomes of the the kind of thinking that I'm going to be putting forward. I am trying, as always, to really just understand things, however imperfect my own conclusions may end up being. I want to offer a provocation, a probe of sorts, to use Marshall McLuhan's idea, a way of testing where we are right now, because resistance is fertile. I am more interested in raising the question and then letting you figure out what you think about it, rather than having me tell you what you should make of it. I do happen to think much of what has gone wrong is an issue of heresy in the technical sense, of shrinking down a view of things to a few bare components instead of thinking about the whole and how that whole is made and how it all fits together. In this time, there are more monsters than just Scylla and Charybdis, and I think we would do well to recognize this. And certainly in this time of pandemic and crisis, many other monsters have reared their scary heads. And yet, the most prominent reduction in popular discourse seems to me to have been to these two monsters. And I think that it is the result of a general aura of modern liberalist ideas. If this is what life is about, we are in far bigger trouble than we think. In some ways, COVID-19 should be the least of our worries. Again, I think the pandemic has been apocalyptic. It has revealed a kind of baseline consciousness that needs to be seriously called into question. Modernity, of course, is the heresy much of our world has been founded on. Well, here I want to strongly argue against modern medicine's conception of health and challenge in particular what I'm going to call forensic consciousness. This is something we can see very dramatically spelled out in many epidemiological practices right now, but which has a long history. For the record, I think many epidemiological practices make very good sense. If you want to stop a virus from spreading, if you want to save lives and place less strain on any given healthcare system, then it's a good idea, for example, to call for social distancing and better hand washing. But maybe there is something like... Epidemiologism, a kind of ideological construction that has emerged from limiting the focus too much. The issue of how to stop a virus is a good one, but the issue of how to do this without dehumanizing people in the process is arguably even more important a kind of context for the issue of stopping the virus. I mentioned way back in my episode on scapegoating that we're going to see people being treated horribly. At this time, we're going to see explosions of violence, and we have seen exactly this, precisely in many cases because of this epidemiologism, or maybe what you might call the epidemiologification of society. But I don't think this is just an immediate concern. I don't think this is just about what's happening now. I think this was set up a long, long time ago, a way of dehumanizing people through a particular kind of systemic reduction of the human. I hope you're hearing me right, by the way. I am not arguing against epidemiology per se. I am arguing against making it so utterly absolute that other questions of value and ethics and even interpretive ambiguity within the sciences get totally abandoned, of course, by implication, I am also not for the way that people have argued against say using masks and being respectful of social distancing. To me, there is another idol at work here, maybe even something like a demon. I'm arguing in essence for a more holistic and loving context within which we can live. In fact, Doctors and healers in human history used to see health in fairly holistic terms. You get a very strong sense of this ancient consciousness represented, for instance, in the stories of Jesus healing people. A disclaimer is useful here. Yes, Jesus as God incarnate means that his example is something we simultaneously aspire to and fall short of. Still, we see that Jesus' focus was not on something reductive at all. He didn't attend just to something like sussing out symptoms and dishing out prescription medication to be filled out at the local impersonal pharmacy, but also, more importantly, he attended to deep spiritual and relational needs. He did not just heal the body, as if it were a bag of meat that people have to lug around, whether willingly or not. Rather, he healed the whole person, including her or his place within a community. We see this, for example, in the healing of the Gerasene demoniac. What was cured was not just the man's severe mental illness, but also his social standing, and by implication, his entire spiritual trajectory. When Jesus healed the woman who had been ill for 12 years, he stopped a crowd and took the trouble to address the woman face to face knowing that the restoration of her spirit was ultimately as important, if not more important than the health of her body. She was a social outcast, and Jesus took the trouble to address her as daughter, as someone loved and as someone who needed to have her standing within the social order restored. And these are just two examples of many. Jesus is always the great example, the archetype of getting all of this perfectly right. The commonsensical take on health throughout much of human history has held that health is a matter of wholeness, not just about the body, but a matter of our whole selves in relation to larger spiritual and social realities. Of course, in ancient medicine there were problems, often terrifying problems, while many understandings of spiritual and social maladies were rich and profound, even If occasionally off-kilter, the ancients made many mistakes in understanding the actual human body. There are horror stories about what this has meant for people in history, and leeches and the absence of anesthesia are the very least of it. Still, at least the ancient baseline consciousness involved a recognition of health as more than a matter of things like proper bodily function, having a balanced diet, regular exercise, and so on. These are very good things to be appreciated and celebrated, but health should not be reducible to these things as they have been. What I mean is, when we think of health, we shouldn't have to be defaulting to the strictly medical definition of what health means. For the record, I'm not saying that the social constructivist view of health is correct. There are objective standards for what constitutes health, and modern medicine is very clued up about many of these, just clearly not all of them. Modern medicine is wonderful, but it has its limits too, which we should be mindful of, or maybe we should at least make an effort to become aware of its limits. Given how poor the understanding of the human body itself has been at times in human history, it makes sense that modern medicine would develop new means and methods to better understand it, even if slightly at the expense of understanding life itself. I'm very grateful, as I'm sure many of us are, for many of these developments. But there is a terribly dark side to all of this too. There is an issue, for example, of iatrogenesis, namely when treatment itself is the cause of harm. We know this in simple instances where a diagnosis is wrong, where drugs prescribed are wrong, where side effects outweigh intended effects, where being treated for one thing in a hospital leads a patient to contracting something else that ends up killing them. Iatrogenesis is not a trivial thing, but then... There is a wider social dimension to this, where the doctor as healer, witness, and counselor, as in ancient times, becomes the scientist who sees the patient as an experimental subject rather than as a unique case. This is what the brilliant, somewhat anarchic thinker Ivan Illich calls cultural iatrogenesis. The idea is that not only can medical practice cause harm even where help is the aim, Modern medicine can change the way we live and conceive of life itself. This is most evident at the edges of life around birth and death. But it is evident, too, in how many people start to see their own bodies as mere tools, as things that can be warped and bent out of shape by surgeries or by dieting regimes or just plain wielded as a tool, as a mechanism within a larger system of control. Many adopt a starkly dualistic view of the body as something the mind controls and is somehow separate from. In this way, modernity and Gnosticism are not nearly as far removed from one another as people sometimes think. The sacramental quality of the body has been to a great extent lost in modern culture. Here's one way this plays out. Throughout human history, women in particular would have undergone profound and life-enriching training around midwifery. The idea of childbearing and childbirth would have been regarded as intimately interwoven into the fabric of life itself. It was something amazing and awe-inspiring, but birth has been often over-medicalized in recent times. The risks of giving birth, for instance, have become not a natural extension of conception and pregnancy and of life itself, but have been deemed in some respects more normal than conception and pregnancy and life itself. Risk has moved from the periphery to the center. This is far from a neutral issue. So now, in many places in the world, cesarean sections are actively encouraged by obstetricians, even where they are not necessary. And this is a very mild version of the problem. Obstetricians, whose aim, one would think, would be to be part of something literally life-giving, are given to constantly covering their own sides in disclaimers and may even encourage the termination of pregnancies where they fear they will be held accountable for birth defects that have... Nothing to do with them. And yes, some of this is because of the constant threat of litigation, which extends the problem of over medicalizing things. The trouble is that the bureaucratization of life is exaggerated to an obscene degree, one of the consequences of modernity. I know, of course, there are complications to this issue that I've just brought up, and I am aware of many of these complications many times there are medical interventions that are necessary and life-saving. My point, though, is that at a cultural level, consciousness around health has changed as medicine has started to take more and more control over birth and also most definitely death. Death used to be seen as a part of life. But in modern medicine, death is seen fundamentally as an intrusion. Now, I know there are sort of ways in which this fits with a a very long and complicated history um, linked to Christianity, but but one way this plays out in modern medicine, specifically this very secularized uh, realm of modern medicine, is that modern medicine starts to overreach in its advocacy for euthanasia. If we can't stop death, maybe one way to control it is to decide when death should be administered, somehow, mind you, as a kind of a cure. I have many reasons for being against both abortion and euthanasia, among them the obvious one that as soon as we cannot affirm the goodness and sanctity of existence itself, our ethics becomes entirely divorced from God and from natural law, and it starts to become merely emotivist and expressivist. This is another modern Gnostic gesture that I find intolerable and unlivable. As soon as we include killing in our ethics, we no longer have ethics at all, only a general kind of emotional vibe that convinces us that we're doing the right thing, only when we feel that we're doing the right thing. I see the intrusion of modern medicine into the realm of death, either in a panicked attempt to prevent it at all costs or in an attempt to control the time of death itself. I see this as a further example of how modern medicine is culturally iatrogenic. As Ivan Illich writes, under the stress of crisis, the professional who is believed to be in command can easily presume immunity from the ordinary rules of justice and decency. He who is assigned control over death ceases to be an ordinary human. And of course, one of my concerns is how doctors get trained into a kind of desensitization towards larger concerns. I think this is deeply worrying when this happens. Illich suggests a further consequence of the overreach of a particular kind of forensic consciousness, namely that our bodies and ourselves become the result of medical concepts and cares. Illich suggests that our bodies and cells become components in an ontology of systems. In other words, we start to see ourselves as parts in the medical machine. To use the language of Alistair MacIntyre, the virtue of efficiency overrides the virtue of excellence. You can see this play out, for example, in competitive sports, where everything, diet, training, etc., becomes so carefully calibrated and fine-tuned, that the body itself becomes a kind of ideal, established not by something like fun or the joy of competition or even by something like enjoying having a body or the challenge of, of competing against others, but it is established by specific empirical, almost Gnostic criteria. Within a system, everything is about uses and ends, not enjoyment, not love, not wonder. The idea of a gift is obsolesced, health as a gift, wholeness as a gift. Remember that a gift, to be a gift, requires relationality. But in modern medicine, there is huge pressure to destroy the relational dimension of medical care. This doesn't always happen, of course, but I've lived through examples of where this is certainly evident. In this time of pandemic... Here's where things get even more brutal. Epidemiology is alarmingly utilitarian. It sees its aim clearly slow the spread of the contagion, flatten the curve, and so on. And much of this is really, as part of a total system of well being, a good thing. Who wouldn't want to stop their loved ones from getting sick? It seems obvious to me that we should stop tragedies from multiplying in a time of already immense crisis. But the epidemiologification of society has some rather severe costs because the aim is a systemic one and in many ways a utilitarian one. The greatest good in this case is flattening the curve and slowing the spread. This is disturbingly limiting of the frame that we are working with. So now many people have been placed in terrible positions where their loved ones have been dying alone or even just where they have been undergoing medical treatment in hospitals without their loved ones being able to visit. In various places all over the world, people with other healthcare issues are not getting the care they need. Now, obviously, I see how complex the problems are that we are dealing with, but what I cannot help but notice too is that the decisions around what is medically or epidemiologically advisable are not so-called neutral decisions at all. They are steeped in ideology. And we know this because persons have been replaced by the notion of population. Even the hardline take of some countries around just letting the virus spread for the sake of so-called herd immunity is a sign of this eclipse of personhood, the whole herd immunity idea is taken from veterinary science, imported into questions of how the human population will manage the epidemic. It is, I think, um, well, kind of insanity. Note how the major decisions around COVID have been in response to a threat that medical systems will be overwhelmed. It is a fair concern, of course, but it is by no means an absolute. Certainly, it would be rendered peripheral where death is not primarily under the purview of modern medicine. I have a concern that the trauma of eradicating the presence of love in the midst of this crisis will have lasting effects on people that will never go away that the merely epidemiological response is causing what some call a mental health crisis, but which I prefer to think of as forced spiritual distress. I don't want to reduce the human mind to something as clinical as mental health. But in the conversations I've had with many of my students and colleagues and friends in this time, it has become clear that the mental well-being of people... Has not been prioritized in any way. I see more to this issue too, of course. There is so much going on at this time, but I don't have enough time to get into it now. So, yes, of course, the physical health of our physical bodies is important where possible, and I am grateful today that I am healthy. I will also try to stay healthy wherever possible because that would be the sensible thing to do. But Life is more than health. At least, it is more than this one particular construction of what health should be. I'm not advocating being reckless or stupid. I don't think that's a good idea. I don't think we should be careless. But I do think we need to, as a global village, ask what higher values we might need to ground ourselves properly in the question of what it means to be fully human. Well, In the Christian tradition, the meaning of being fully human has a very simple answer. It is Christ. It is the God-man who looked at society and at people and saw wholeness as a genuine possibility. In particular, as in the examples I narrated earlier, that wholeness did not involve neglecting the vital power of presence. I'm not saying that I have all the answers here. I've never claimed that I do. I began by saying I wasn't going to provide anything like a complete answer to the question of health. In a way, to do so would be to downplay the importance of really understanding what it means to be healthy, that is, what it means to be whole. These are terribly complicated times, and we still have a way to go before we're in anything resembling a clearing. Still, I think it is important, especially for people of faith, to think very deeply about the cost of giving ourselves over completely to the scylla of medical health or even to the Charybdis of economic health which has another way of reducing the human subject to a component in a system for these macromyths the human being is easily reduced to being a mere datum within a system At the very least, I think we need to raise the question of what it means to be human in the midst not only of pandemic, but also in the midst of everything else too. What does it mean to be human? Well, in a way, I have given the answer. Christ is, as Joseph Pieper points, the model for what it means to be fully human. And being fully human involves reaching out to those who need care, to those who need love, to those who need presence. So what comes next? I've been thinking a lot recently about the question of providence, the issue of how God is at work in the world and in us, and what this even means when there is so much struggle and suffering. I know what the usual glib answers are, and I want to steer clear of them as best as I am able to, but I do really want to explore God's providence deeply from the perspective of a robust philosophical theology and metaphysics. So that, in short, is what we will be diving into next. I'm still living through a particularly insane time, as I'm sure many of you are. My work has been unusually demanding with reorganizing so much at the university I teach at. Um, my home life is a mix of <laughs> of homeschooling and trying to get work done and juggling uh, tag team parenting um, so there's there's a lot going on and that's one of the reasons why these podcasts have been coming out so very slowly but I'm going to do my best to return to something approximating a more regular schedule for the release of these podcasts. I really do appreciate all of you listening. I'm grateful that you've given even this episode. Uh, some time this very unusual episode i hope it has given you good food for thought even if you have happened to have disagreed with something that i've said i hope it can be a productive disagreement something that gives rise to further good thinking around some very complex issues in a very difficult time take care of yourselves everyone